Let's, um, let's read responsibly by whole verse. I'll start off. I will exalt you, O Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. O Lord, you brought me up from the grave and spared me from going down into the pit. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. O Lord, when you favored me, you made my mountain stand firm, but when you hid your face, I was dismayed. What gain is there in my destruction, in my going down into the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. Does it appear as though this person went through trials and tribulations? You know, going down to the pit, the, the dust, if you will, uh, this is something that's actually reflected in this Isaiah text. Kind of to the gravel, it, it, when, you're, when you're down on the ground, it doesn't necessarily mean that you've been to hell or anything like that. It just simply means that you have been laid low, that, you, that, that, you've been, um, that you've been made to virtually have no strength to be able to endure. And God allows that to happen. And yet somehow through even what we see as being evil, God is still at work always for good. He is still God. And even these angels, he blinds them so that although they will and work and he lets them have their authority to do so, they work against his will. He takes their will and turns it to serving his will. Paul says that if they had known what they were doing when they crucified Christ, they never would have done it. That he wins the victory. They, uh, the the early church fathers used to say that it's a little bit like um, fishing. Anybody here a fisherman? Not too many. <laughs> Donna is a fisherman here. Uh, not too many of us are fishing nowadays anymore. Uh, but you put that worm on the hook, and there's a steel inside that hook, uh, or a steel inside that worm, and when the great, big, powerful fish comes and grabs onto that worm, the hook catches him. And God takes his son and makes him into a worm of a man. And, of course, you know, underneath all these angels, here are humans. Right? Luther speculates that one of the reasons why it is that that great archangel Satan fell is because God chose to actually reveal himself and enter into a fellowship with humans that was even superior to his fellowship with angels. 
And when he sees that, it causes him to fall, that his pride arises. And he says, what in the world? You're, you're actually letting this dirt, this flesh and blood, become a co-participant with you in your glory? So uh, what happens is that these angels who come to serve us and to serve our good, yet um, there is always an element of suffering that goes along with it. All right, so um, we have to keep our eyes fixed in heaven and the angelic worship that is taking place here above God, where the angels themselves, the seraphim, and, uh, are, are actually here hovering above and over that, almost like the Ark of the Covenant. They spread their, their wings and there is this praise of God that's taking place in heaven. All right, now let's uh, turn, if you will, to the handout. And let's um, turn our Bibles to the book of Isaiah. Now you might say, um, as you look at it, I'd hope to get into Isaiah a little earlier, but these readings are going to correspond with our year of the Bible readings. Um, but when we hop in in chapter 14, Kind of going, well, where's the good news in this way? This because uh, all the way through the next 14 chapters or such, what we have is we have these condemnations, this, this promise of God that He's going to destroy the enemies of God's people. And there are all different countries that were surrounding Israel. Luther wants to make a couple of, I think, points here in this text as he expounds upon it. The first is that, yeah, when trial and tribulation come into our life, that these are things that uh, the difference between us and the world is that they don't overwhelm us. They, they are, we live through them. But he wants to also say the way that we see things, we don't see an end to them. We just see the problems that, they, that we have. We live with anxiety. We live with despair. We become upset by them. We don't think that God is with us in our life. And yet, he, Luther says, this is the flesh. The flesh just can't see. We don't, we don't see God's hand through all this. Second thing is that Luther says, um, Sometimes the only way that we, because our flesh is weak, sometimes the only way that we can draw comfort is by seeing that God is going to destroy our enemies. Um, in other words, um, when you're coming out from the school playground and the bully is there to beat you up, uh, you don't have the strength to be able to stand up to the bully, but you really do appreciate it when your big brother shows up and just beats the old big bully uh, one time I, I, we, were, I was, uh, we were at school, and, you know, you never know what it is that your kids are going to go through at school, right? And Hans was always kind of the, he was the four-eyes kid. You know, he always had the thick Coke bottle glasses. And he's kind of a, he's kind of a lioness the lion kind of personality. He's, he was always uh, smelling the flowers and, and finding four-leaf clovers out in the soccer field. And, and was never much of a, what I call, a fighter. 
And so it was not uncommon that kids would pick on him. And um, one day I, was, I came to pick him up, and I looked up, and they were coming down the stairs, and the bully was coming out, and he was going after Hans like this, you know. Well, all of a sudden I looked, and this kid flies through the air and lands on the back of the bully. It was his younger brother, Jake. <laughs> and you just go, you know, sometimes you just give thanks <laughs> for the kid who's ready to commit suicide. Yeah. Um, all right. So Luther says um, we take comfort from the fact that God says he's going to vanquish our enemies. And uh, we have our own enemies, a great number. So let's, uh, let's, let's read together here. Um, I'll, I'll read the big quote at the very beginning, and you can follow along. Every trial seems permanent to our mind, and our reason does not see the end of the trial. Therefore, divine mercy appoints an end for which we cannot grasp. With God, our trial is but an evening's duration. The flesh, however, does not know how to reckon this, but judges according to the senses. Therefore, we must rather cling by faith to the word of God. For although we have the word, we must expect all the troubles that others have sustained. Therefore, for the same affliction, we make use of the same promise and comfort. In other words, when you go back into the scriptures, you know, yeah, we see all these trials and problems that the Israelites have in God's promises, but we have to remember we're going to go through them too, different times, different places, but these promises are also for us. Therefore, for the same affliction, we make use of the same promise and comfort. Trials seem long-lasting, but they are short before God, who provides the outcome and will indeed permit us to be afflicted, but not overcome. For we are founded on the solid rock, which is Christ. All right. Now, in chapter 14, you'll notice I'll just read the, um, the, the text that was actually the Old Testament lesson for today in church. The Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again, he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. Aliens will join them and unite with the house of Jacob. Nations will take them and bring them to their own place. And the house of Israel will possess the nations as men servants and maid servants in the Lord's land. They will make captives of their captors and rule over their oppressors. You have, um, you always have kind of these me messianic things, right? Um, when did Jesus first note? Um, I guess you might say. When did Jesus seem to give an indication that the time was now coming when he was going to actually um, uh, be brought to the cross and crucified? You know, we we kind of think of things like the Mount of Transfiguration, you know, now he turns and so on and so forth. But there, was a, there was a time when Jesus makes an interesting statement. Uh, one of his disciples brings to him some Hellenes, some Greeks. And they said, we would see Jesus. 
And Jesus says, now the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In other words, the, the, the draw of the Gentiles, the draw of the Gentiles was going to happen with the crucifixion of Christ. That this Savior who died for the sins of the whole world, this power of this, of this gospel was already beginning that this, as these Gentiles were now saying, we would see Jesus. Well, you maybe even have it earlier, right? We just said it today. Epiphany oftentimes celebrates the appearance of the of the wise men. Yeah. And these wise men came from, uh, they believe, Armenia, the mountains of Armenia, not far from where it is that probably the ark had rested. They had probably been scholars who had been studying all the different traditions of religions and probably knew an awful lot about the Hebrew scriptures. And when they saw that star, they were drawn, called. See, when Jesus says that when he is raised from the dead, he will draw all men to himself. This is, this is like gravity. Um, we kind of make it look like evangelism is where we go out and we're just convincing people with logic and reason and personal testimonies about how we feel about Jesus. The gospel has a power unto itself that draws. And you'd be surprised. Um, you know, I always like to say that it is important that we are confessors of faith. I got, I think I've told you before, I got my uh, trial by fire in evangelism um, I was at the seminary for one semester it was at, it's when it was at Springfield, and that summer they moved, and I had to have a job. And I went, and in the blue notes they said, they're looking for a Galveston Beach minister. And I, I saw the word Galveston. I saw the word beach. And the word minister never really came across my mind much, but I just, beach, beach. And I thought, well, that's the kind of job that I need. And so I went down to Galveston down there, and, um, and uh, they, I said, well, what, what do you want me to do? And they said, well, your job is to go out onto the beach and evangelize. What does evangelize mean? It means that you talk to people about Jesus. So the first day came, and I just said, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? How am I going to? So, I'm so nervous. I could just, it was just like, ooh. And so I said, all right. Well, it, one day it rained. And I said, that's when I want to go to the beach. <laughs> so I went down to the beach. I thought, nobody's going to be on the beach. It'll be great. You know, just breathe, breathe. And I got down to the beach, and there was one guy. One guy playing with his dog down on the beach. And so finally I said, all right, I've got to go talk to him. Went up and talked to the guy. He was Jewish. And he wanted me to prove from the Old Testament that Jesus was the Messiah. I said, I've got one semester of seminary. What are you <laughs> talking about here? We talked for four hours and it continued on. I, I began to realize that there are more and more people that are out there that are suffering that really, truly do want to be able to hear the real gospel. 
And they're suffering from their own lifestyles. They're suffering from their guilt. Uh, and 90% of the time, it's all, it's all up here. There's this veneer, right? That they, I don't think you have to go to church to be a Christian. I can worship in my own house. Yesterday, I went downstairs. The Lithuanians were there. You know, we've uh, let the Lithuanians have their special little time in our facility, which is good. It's a nice way of being able to use our church for good purposes. But I go down and I talk to them. And this one lady was a professor. Uh, I said she was sitting with another lady, both of them speaking with fairly thick accents. I said, well, how was your Christmas? Good. I said, where did you go to church? And the one lady went, I didn't. I said, oh. Um, and then it took, we started talking about Lithuania and the situation there. And, what, you know, she teaches university. And we talked about teachers. And I talked about my wife as a teacher. And she talked about her life as a teacher. And pretty soon we started to get down underneath it all, right? Do we need, is it important for us to go to church? Is it important for us to be, do, do we just do our church in our home and that's all that we need to do? You start getting down and you start letting the plow down and things are much more complex in people's lives. And all you have to do is this. Say to yourself, I promise that I won't go after anybody. I will only do this. If I am asked by somebody what I believe, if I'm asked by somebody to respond to their own personal needs that they have actually brought to me, I will not shut my mouth. I will speak. And you will be surprised. You'll be standing at the water fountain and all of a sudden something's going to happen. You'll be finding yourself talking to your neighbor next door and you'll find out that there's somebody who has had some issue in their life. One day I went to the hospital. I was in Connecticut. I was walking up to the hospital. And this lady came out and she was carrying these heavy, heavy bags. Or at least she acted as though they were heavy. She was weighed down like this. And I just, I didn't know what came over me. I just said, can I help you carry those bags? She said, would you please? So I grabbed these bags and I'm walking out to her car. I said, what's the matter? My husband's in the hospital and he's going to die. I said, oh, I said, do you, do you have a pastor? She said, no, but I used to be Lutheran. <laughs> I said, well, <laughs> as a matter of fact. <laughs> and we went on to form a relationship. I went out and called on her in her house and so on and so forth. Her husband died. Well, I don't know. I don't know whatever happened to her, but... I do know that if we open ourselves up, that there are many people who are going through trials and tribulations. Say nothing of those even who want to be able to, who have joyful things happening in their life. How the hand of God, how these angels are working in this world, we don't always know. And that's a side thing. But it is what Epiphany is all about. Be prepared to understand that the hope that lies within you is 
real hope. God has put away your sin. God does not use trial and tribulation as punishment for those who see through to his grace. Okay. What does Luther say in chapter 14, verse 3? Here in 3, let's read it once again. On the day the Lord gives you relief from suffering and turmoil and cruel bondage, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Luther says, everything aims at the consolation of the godly. In no affliction can there be enough comfort for the human heart because the works of God are great and we are weak. Do we see, here comes the question, do we see ourselves generally as a people who live in bondage? Everybody here who feels like they're living in bondage, please raise their hand. Don't dare. We don't dare say we are. But, um, we, of course, know we can see the bondage of other people around us. What, what, what kinds of bondage do we see? So all we have to do is kind of march right on down those Ten Commandments, and we'll talk about, look at, um, we'll just take the Fourth Commandment. You have children being raised without fathers, children being raised in families where the family itself has been destroyed. Fourth commandment means that God actually is guaranteeing and promising that through such instruments as fathers and mothers that he will actually care for and provide. And you find people who today have been raised, they have no idea of how it is that a father or a mother should even behave. Typically mothers, perhaps a little bit more instinctual. Fathers, however, Hmm. It's a very, very typical thing. And those children, without those fathers, are living in bondage. Anybody who's lo losing a mother is too, but let me tell you, that's an issue. Fifth commandment, hatred. You know, we talk ab about what's going on in these inner cities, about the hatred that's behind some of these movements that are going on now. Hatred towards police, hate towards authority, hatred, racial hatred, and pointing to things that have been there for years in forms of prejudice. We can't all say it's just, oh, my goodness sakes, all those African Americans, they're just full of hatred. They also have dealt with a lot of prejudice, but the biggest issue is very often poverty, right? And when a person hates people because they prosper, they're in bondage. When a person thinks that they're better than somebody else because they've prospered, they're in bondage. Materialism is it's, it's, a, it's, it's the, the thrall bore in the ear. We live in slavery to our fear. Our fear. Somebody says that they're predicting that uh, there's uh, predictions that there's going to be a huge stock market crash that property values are going to drop by 40 to 50 percent. The stock market's going to lose 50 percent. Most of us are going to be probably losing our retirement incomes. You know, what would happen if that happened? Are we living in terror of that? Does that affect the way that we live as Christians? Are we going to be able to survive that? You know, I notice how often if we take away uh, those things, how people can live in terror.
and understandably so. But uh, the, the vices that are existing today, the drugs that are existing today, you talk about, about being caught in, in demonic worship almost, these drugs. The word pharmakio uh, that is used for witchcraft, what do you suppose that word is translated over into our language? Pharmakio? Pharmacy. The use of drugs. So we, we are people that are facing all different kinds of bondage. And yet the most subtle ones, the ones that you won't admit to today, nor I will admit to today, is that we are not masters of our own selves and we sin much and daily such that we have a sinful nature that we cannot in any way overcome or vanquish or put to death. The, uh, the, woman, the word that is used here, Luther points out, bondage affects us, he says, like a woman in labor. Uh, there are only about half of us here today that understand that analogy. But our labor pain today, what is it? Who are our really, truly greatest enemies? Is it Russia? Is it Putin? Is it ourselves? In 14, verse 19, we speak here about the grave below. Let's read that, 14, verse 19. If you go all the way to 19. He says, this is to the king of Babylon, but you are cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch. You are covered with the slain and those pierced by the sword, those who descend to the stones of the pit like a corpse trampled underfoot. Um, that grave, the evil, Luther points out that sometimes the evil of these, of these, of these people are so great. You look at, that, at ISIS, right? Here are these people who could behead little children. These people who take Christians out and, and kill them uh, doesn't even, not even just Christians, but anybody who they think is on the other side, that they could just kill men, women, and children. They're so evil that even hell itself trembles when they go down into the pit. Um, you have seen that, that very theological movie with Johnny Depp. Um, what, the one with the ship, what is that called? Pirates of the Caribbean, that's it, that's right. It's very, very theological. Um, because all those people who are there, that look, you know, welcome to hell. And that's, that's, that's exactly what we're going to be seeing. And even hell trembles with what these people are doing. You cannot believe, if you've ever um, I listened to a guy by the name of Don Carlin called um, Hardcore History. Anybody here who listened to his blog? You do. Um, he talks about this ancient world of these Assyrians in particular, as well as the Babylonians. They were the most unbelievably cruel people you could ever imagine. Um, you know, the Assyrians were known for literally flaying the skin off of people before they killed them, while they were still alive. Um, the the unbelievable barbary um, 
you know, bringing in the, the wife of the, of the king that they just conquered and taking her and killing her in front of the eyes of the king along with his children and so on and so on. It's just, we, we think today that, you know, oh man, that's so bad. You know, we fought wars where we shot people with guns. These are people who practiced the most unbelievable tortures you could ever imagine against their enemies. And this is what they did to God's people, too. And God says, it's going to happen. I'm going to bring about your destruction. In 14, verse 12, kind of an interesting... Um, that, was, uh, that was 14, verse 9. That 14, verse 12. Why don't you read it with me? Um, okay. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth you who once laid low the nations. Now this is, um, this is, he's called Lucifer. And Luther says this is not referring to the angel Lucifer. But it is interesting that wherever you see Satan's unrestrained power at work, he takes on the characteristics of the personality of Lucifer. That is to say, you set in your heart follows in first thing i will ascend to heaven i will raise my throne above the stars i will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain you know jesus says that the mark of the antichrist is that the antichrist sits in the temple of god proclaiming himself to be god satan's greatest desire is to find himself in the place of god in the church the highest form of evil is the angel of light who is actually the angel of darkness. And how do you recognize that angel? He transfers the power of salvation onto himself and takes it away from Christ. Now, if, therefore, and Luther is not so far from what's going on, if the Pope maintains that he has the power over heaven and hell, in what way does that differ? See, that we, we can't, it's, it's hard for us as, as Christians to, to deal with this because we're used to country westerns where there are good guys and bad guys and there are black hats and there are white hats. Uh, Luther would say, God wants us to recognize the devil under the mask of God, and he wants us to recognize God under the mask of the devil. That is, when we see a Christ crucified, when we see the darkness of the kingdom, when we see saints being killed, and we say to ourselves, hey, there's the devil's work, we say, no, there's where God's grace is at work. Where we see uh, Herod, when we see the wonderful glories of the kingdom, where we see riches, where we see wealth, we say, oh, there's God blessing. The fact of the matter is, is that very often that's where it is that the greatest danger lies, and that's where Satan is doing his greatest work. So for Luther to be going to Rome and to seeing all the glory of Rome, for Luther, he says, no. This is not necessarily, we're only listening for what? We listen for the voice of the gospel. 
And if the gospel's hope is being placed in something other than Christ, guess what you're dealing with? That's Lucifer. So he, he is basically saying this Babylon, this in the book of Revelation, Babylon is personified as the Antichrist. This arrogance of the Babylonians is very characteristic of God's enemies. Then in verse 14, verse 20, there is this um, interesting statement. You will not join them in burial, for you have destroyed your land and killed your people. The offspring of the wicked will never be mentioned again. Babylon was just simply, of course, wiped out by the Persians and the Medes. But Luther says, Belshazzar, the third grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, was killed at night by the Medes. In other words, here's the third generation, as we read in Daniel 5.30. The fact that Scripture teaches in Deuteronomy 24.16 that the children shall not be put to death for the fathers means that this is commended to human judges. In other words, no judge is supposed to make the children have to pay for the crimes of their fathers. But God, who is a Lord of body and soul, visits, quote, we, didn't we all memorize this in our catechism? The iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generation. Yeah, so in other words, this is what we have to remember. That our children are going to suffer the consequences of our own sinful behavior. We have to stop. You, you look, look back in time. Look back in time. And see what happens when people fall away from the faith. And then their children fall away from the faith. And their grandchildren fall even further from the faith. You think this is... Something that's simple? Your devotion, your involvement, your prayers, your care, your concern that becomes a part of your everyday life becomes the inheritance of your children, your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren. And don't give it up because the sins of the fathers become the sins of the children. That's why your faithfulness is so crucial. This is, um, right now, a um, huge, huge problem in our Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. I won't, won't go into any great depth about this, but let me tell you, right now, it's like a business owner who's suddenly discovered that his income is dropping and he is living in a very changing world and he, has to, he doesn't know what to do with his business because he's, it's about ready to fail. The Missouri Synod is right now, we are, we are not just losing members, but we're going older. We're a church body that is actually, and this is happening all, all across church denominations, we're not maybe even losing as much as other people, but we're living in a changing world, and probably one of the first times the second and third generation of Lutherans are vanishing. They're going into non-denominational churches if they're going at all. And what we find from not, we're discovering from non-denominational churches is that once they go into a non-denominational church, they lose all identity, and then it's really easy for their children to drop out. 
non-denominational churches don't necessarily even care about exercising church discipline. It's that there's, this is a show. This is where you go with the band and where you go and where people don't even have to, have to know your name and you have small group events, but you at the same time come to church and the church is just kind of this general place for you. What's going to happen to the next generation? What does it mean to be a Lutheran? Does it matter to us? Do we care that our children are going to be Lutheran? And what, what is a Lutheran anyway when the names of Lutherans are so different from everybody else? And why is it such that you call this church Lutheran, but when you go someplace else, your experience of that church is so radically different, it, does, it looks more like a non-denominational church than it does about a Lutheran church? Do we have a common hymnary? No. Do we have a common set of, of, of liturgy? What do we have in common that defines us? And uh, I, I, this is my soapbox right here. Um, I'm trying to get off of it here as best I can. But what I'm saying is we have a responsibility to our children so that by our faithfulness, and by faithfulness I don't mean that we've all lived perfect lives, there is nothing better that children need to see than to be able to see their parents go through repentance and restoration. But what we have to do is we have to be mindful that to despise God's word, and you're, you're not here because you do. The people who are not here are the ones who do. And we're all in this ship together. We need to care about our own members, about our own family, about these people in this church that are not here, who are just drifting away. And when they drift, you think that their children care? My son Hans was saying that they've done a study that they have found out that the faithfulness of children is almost directly tied to the faithfulness of their fathers. Mothers love their children no matter what. They, mothers, they, they can go back to their mother. It's unquestioned. When their fathers go to church, children say, oh, this is important. So um, why do we need men in church? Why is it important? By George, I hope that when we come here, the kind of music that we sing is not that sappy feminine stuff that it is that sappy feminine stuff that you oftentimes call modern-day church growth music. A little bouncing ball on the screen, band singing the same words. My uncle, my, my Baptist uncle was upset by it. Now, if a Baptist gets upset by it, you know it's really bad. <laughs> he called them 7-Eleven songs. Seven words sung 11 times. <laughs> now, the Apollonian Dionysian music, Dan, um, uh, Dan Roning up at the seminary used to talk about the distinction. Apollonian music and Dionysian music. Dionysius was a goddess of love. Apollo was a goddess of war. Very often, male-directed music is Apollonian. Um, the Son of God goes forth to war, a kingly crown to gain. His blood-stained banners. And all the guys go, yeah. <laughs> and um, so anyway, um, the multi-generational aspect of this is an important factor. All right? 
So, uh, yeah, Babylonia is going to be utterly destroyed. Then he makes, uh, he digresses. The, it's a prophecy digression in 1424 to 27. And then he speaks against this Sennacherib who is the king of Assyria. And, and you have to understand that when, when God's word says something, it does not mean merely that God is reflecting upon these things. It means that by God's word saying it, it will happen. So the comfort of this text is that God's word has proclaimed the destruction of these peoples. And these peoples are constantly afflicting God's people. So when they're reading this, they're saying to themselves, don't you remember the Cecil B. DeMille production of The King and I? No, you're too young, all of you. Remember, not, not Cecil B. DeMille, um, what's the name? Yul Brenner. Yul Brenner, King, uh, King and I, right? <laughs> Let it be written. No, 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 no. That, 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 was, uh, that was the Exodus, the Moses thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. Okay, Here, here's Pharaoh. Yul Brenner, still same guy. Let it be written. Let it be. You haven't been eating enough meat. Let it be done. Let it be written, let it be done, he always says. So that if it becomes written, it will be done. In the scriptures, when it is written, it will be done. So, what about the destruction of the Philistines in chapter 14, verse 28 to 32? This is of great comfort for Hezekiah. Luther says, The last prophecy against Assyria was finished in the 14th or 15th year of Hezekiah's reign, but what the prophet is dealing with is now happening in the king's first year. He's just saying these prophetic pronouncements are being recorded by Isaiah, but they actually are not in sequence. Now, Luther makes an interesting statement here. He says, judgment is to begin with the household of God, as we read in 1 Peter 4, 17. So he first chastises himself and his people, and then the other nations. First, the beam must be pulled out of one's own eye. The righteous man is his own accuser. First, the ungodly, on the contrary, stick only to the crimes of others and, do not, and forget their own. What we have to remember is this, and this is, this is, um, this is especially for us as Lutherans, as Missouri Synod Lutherans, as liturgical confessing Missouri Synod Lutherans, that we must constantly be taking the beam out of our own eye. We, if we are not objective about ourselves, we cannot be objective about anybody else. We must confess our own sins first before we can confess the sins of others. Our enemies will confess our sins enough anyway, but be mindful that there, this, is, this is necessary. Okay, um, I'm going to go down because of the time now. Let's go down to the consolation and let's read this all together, okay, at the very end here. The godly always have a joyful conscience and know that they are pleasing to God. They are unconcerned about what may befall them from without and they will not lack fruit like the ungodly however great the cross they bear, both from and from within. 
The external cross is self-imposed, not of God. The internal cross is the... The godly bear only an external cross, not self-imposed, but placed by God. And they have no cross within, but they do have peace and a cheerful innocery. Let us, therefore, beware of ungodly doctrines, because they are extremely destructive and nothing but toil and grief, yea, a plague of God. As Moses says in Deuteronomy 28:36, there you shall serve other gods. God can put up with our weaknesses and our dereliction if only we will abide in his pure word. But if the word is removed, then God himself and true worship are also removed. Now that a lot of theology there in the, in the theology of the cross, and we'll talk more about that as well. As Christians, we always, always, always will bear a cross internally. We will always bear one. Um, but that is not a cross that is for our destruction. It is a cross that is there for the purpose of crucifying our sinful natures and driving us rather to the promises and the hope and the confidence that we have in God. Now, uh, make a list of all your enemies this week and ask God to destroy them. And, um, and, then, uh, and then think about all your weaknesses and all the need that you have for God's affirmation and support. And remember that no matter what, God works through everything for our good. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.